0: I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and Biography. Today I'm speaking with Egyptologists Colleen and John Darnell. Colleen teaches art history at Nagatuk Valley Community College, and John is professor of Egyptology in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Yale University. Their new book, Egypt's Golden Couple, when Akhenaten and Nefertiti were gods on earth, arrives on the 100th anniversary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. Akhenaten and Nefertiti were King Tut's parents, and their reign marked a revolutionary period in both the Egyptian religion and artistic creations. Colleen and John, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss your fascinating new book. Thank you for inviting us.
2: So happy to be here.
0: Of course. You know, this book was, was really fun to read, and... I think the uh, the first thing for me is when I was, was a little kid, I remember being just so fascinated by ancient Egypt and actually going to the Natural History Museum to see King Tut's tomb. So uh, I really felt as I was reading this book that I was having like these uh, these recollections of things that I saw uh, as a kid. And you you both do such a wonderful job of describing the, the artworks uh, that, that you examined. So before jumping into the book, uh, I was wondering if you guys could just talk a little bit about how you got interested in this subject, uh, you know, what your background is and, and what brought you to writing this.
1: So my background in Egyptology began really um, as a child, and I was always focused on the scripts and the ancient Egyptian language. Eventually after working on Greco-Roman hieroglyphic inscriptions, which basically were written by the ever dwindling number of people who could read and write Egyptian in the late period. So they're coming up with all sorts of little games that they can play with the signs and the sign values, etc. So after working on those sorts of texts, I became interested in earlier Egyptian sign play, you might call it cryptography. And that ultimately led me to, amongst other things, a cryptographic netherworld book, a description of the rejuvenation and regeneration of the sun in the underworld at night that is on the second of the four gilded shrines from the tomb of Tutankhamen. It didn't originally belong to the burial of Tutankhamen, however. It seems to have been prepared originally for the burial of a very ephemeral ruler, whom we now know to be uh, this Ankh or who comes between the reigns of Akhenaten and, and Tudank Amun. So that, so that was a long-winded way of saying I, I encountered, let's say, the Amarna period, Akhenaten and Tut, um, through a rather roundabout and somewhat unexpected way. And then over the years, as I've worked on um, desert road archaeology in Egypt, recording archaeological sites and epigraphic material, I kept encountering the period. Amongst other things, we found graffiti in the new art style of Akhenaten at a site in the Western Desert. So Akhenaten has sort of popped up in my work on ancient Egyptian solar religion, cryptography, even graffiti out in the desert. So it it seems like it was almost inevitable that after having read all the, how, how might one say, the writings and miswritings on Akhenaten, uh, it was almost inevitable that that we were going to approach this. Um, Colleen, what do you
2: So my dissertation was also about the netherworld books, and I was looking at the late period revival of the netherworld books around 400 BCE on these huge stone sarcophagi, ones even in the Metropolitan Museum, right next to the Temple of Dendor. So it sadly doesn't get nearly as much attention, although its texts are fascinating. And I've also done a lot of work on Egyptian military history, and John and I wrote a book called Tutankhamen's Armies battle and conquest in ancient Egypt's late 18th dynasty in 2007. And so we did a lot of the background about the period there and then really focused in on the military history. And I've also done a study that was really fun to write uh, in 2013 with Oxford University Press called Imagining the Past. And it's about historical fiction in ancient Egypt. So in the reign of Ramses II, for example, 1250 BCE, they're setting stories 200 years earlier. So I felt like this idea of the ancient Egyptians themselves looking back at their history and putting them in a much broader context was something that we could really do with a new biography of Akhenaten and Nefertiti.
0: Following up on that point, you know, part of the structure of this book is each chapter begins uh, with a, uh, a sort of literary uh, description of the characters, Akhenaten or Nefertiti or, or their parents. Uh, can you talk about the idea behind this, uh, putting, putting a sort of literary spin uh, before going into uh, more of the, the, the maybe research behind the book?
2: So it's interesting that a lot of popular
0: histories
2: about antiquity will often include guesses as to personality or reasoning behind certain events that aren't necessarily based directly on ancient sources. So we wanted to have the challenge of recreating scenes from ancient Egypt using Essentially, every single place is archaeologically attested, every object with which the people interact is something that we include in the bibliographic essay, as well as much of the dialogue. But because there are so many gaps in their story, to bring these people to life, we wanted to very clearly signal where the evidence was and where we could make some assumptions about what might have happened to make them seem like real people, not simply these imaginings from 3000 years ago.
1: Yeah, I think for me it was sort of a way of writing what you might call a you know say a pop history of a 18th, 19th, 20th century person whose letters might survive, who might have also written their own memoirs, let's say. So, so that if you said, after reading this letter, you know, someone was really quite angry and stormed about the room, we might actually have evidence for someone, let's say in the 1800s, that that incident really happened. So that, that we could write something that, that had a narrative similar to what we might find, say, in just purely a novel. But for someone in antiquity, we're, we're going out on a, on a great limb. We're either pretending to take at face value a text that we know would have been interpreted by people at the time as, as being somewhat stilted or somewhat archaic or necessarily showing continuity of action even when you know that obviously what you did is not the same as something that was done a thousand years earlier. So we thought this would be an interesting way of showing people the limitations of our sources to say that you can have a really interesting narrative describing what might have happened based on actual surviving texts and objects, but you're having to fill in so many gaps that it's essentially fictional or semi-fictional or historical fiction. And then at the same time, you can describe what we know but hopefully, in a really interesting way, so that people can see that the the journey to get to the information is itself also worthy of telling as well. So it, it's the it's the necessary kind of split narrative for writing a history or a biography of people from such a remote period.
0: So Akhenaten and Nefertiti—they are part of the the 18th Dynasty. Uh, can you talk a little bit about? the history of Egypt uh, before them, and then just a little bit about uh, who they were and and why they are so important or significant for uh, Egyptian history.
1: I'll try to be really succinct and then Colleen can fill in the gaps or correct it or make it actually comprehensible, but
0: I'll I'll be very succinct. So
1: um, history of Egypt, as far as we can say, the true history begins with the invention of writing um, in Upper Egypt, Southern Egypt, around about 3,250 BCE, that's when we get the hieroglyphic writing system in place. We see its precursors going back already to about 4,000, and we have good evidence of continuous uh, pre-dynastic activity and development of culture in Upper Egypt then from really within the 5th millennium BCE, and the active written tradition of Egyptian. And the spoken tradition of egyptian including coptic which is the last phase of the language written in greek with a few additional letters the active phase of coptic goes down at least to about 1000 ce so so we're dealing with literacy that uh is four and a quarter millennia plus uh for egypt the egyptian state as we know it really originates in the south in in upper egypt in an area around what we call the Kenna region of the Nile. And it grows out of an amalgamation of a number of different groups and cultures, some of them living in the Nile Valley, others coming in out of the deserts to the west and the south primarily. So it's always sort of a complex society. Uh, The Old Kingdom, as we call it, begins around 3100 BCE, really the Archaic period, with the so-called unification of Upper and Lower Egypt, which is a rather interesting event. It's Upper Egypt or Southern Egypt finally taking full control of the northern part of the country, of the Delta region of the Nile Valley. But what the Egyptians do is something rather interesting. Rather than saying, ha-ha, we beat you up and we won, they create this sort of myth of the state in which Upper Egypt indeed was a complex state in what's now called Dynasty Zero, that precedes the first dynasty. But rather than saying, we just took over the north, they say, no, there was a proto-state in the south and a proto-state in the north. And the event was not one beating up the other, but it was a triumph of the ruler and the armies of the state against forces of chaos uniting these two equal halves and this myth of the origin of the state is really quite remarkable for egypt because it's one of the things that helps maintain continuity you simply can't brag even if there is a civil war and you win it you simply can't brag haha i won the civil war and i beat up on this area you simply have to say you united the two lands there are periods of disunity After the glories of the Pyramid Age, uh, around about 2200 BCE or so to either side of that, we have the first intermediate period, which is a time of fragmentation diminution in the power of the central state partly because the provinces get built up so successfully during the Old Kingdom. So it's almost as though royal power and the power of the central administration wanes because they've successfully built up so many local power centers in the different states of Egypt that they no longer wield the power they once did. The Middle Kingdom that begins around 2100, 2050 BCE is a time that's considered by the Egyptians themselves sort of a golden age of literature. There's another period of fragmentation. Uh, I'll let Colleen take over here.
2: So the next period where there isn't a single king in the Nile Valley, and this is what immediately precedes the 18th dynasty, is the second intermediate period when we have a group of people from the north known as the Hyksos, which goes back to the ancient Egyptian, Heka Hasut, the rulers of the foreign lands. And there is a split then between the Hyksos ruling in the north and the upper Egyptians, again, ruling in the south out of ancient Waset, which is modern day Luxor. And that dynasty was called the 17th dynasty, conquers the north, reunites Egypt, and then does something even beyond what Middle Kingdom kings did. They really establish an empire, both to the northeast and to the south. So they seem to have been traumatized to a certain extent by the foreign invasion of the Nile Valley and want to guarantee the security of the home territory of Upper and Lower Egypt, that they thus extend the boundaries. And this continues throughout the early 18th dynasty and Akhenaten and Nefertiti then come towards the end of the 18th dynasty. And immediately before them is another real golden age where there is very little military conflict, but there seems to be tremendous economic stability and building activities under Amenhotep III. So Akhenaten and Nefertiti are definitely inheriting the kingdom of Egypt at one of its highest points.
0: So who were Ahanat and Nefertiti? Why, why write a book about them? You know, what, what were their, obviously we don't have uh, solid evidence on, on who their personalities were, but based on what the records show, uh, who were they and why are they so significant?
2: So we know Akhenaten's parents. Uh, His parents were Amenhotep III and Queen Tia. It's still a mystery who Nefertiti is. So we go with the likeliest scenario, which is that she's actually related to the family of Tia, which is this very prominent family in a province in Middle Egypt. But we chose Akhenaten and Nefertiti. For a couple of different reasons. One, because so much of their innovations relates to solar religion. And that has been one of the main focuses of our research, including a complete English translation of the netherworld books in the Valley of the Kings, which is all about what the sun does uh, during the 12 hours of the night. But also we felt that, and, and let me know what you think on this John specifically, that they had not been properly described together. And so much of what has been said about Akhenaten seems to be influenced by modern perceptions of wanting to use him for a particular reason. The same has definitely been true with Nefertiti. And so I feel like we wanted to write it together as a, joint biography for Akhenaten and Nefertiti because you can't really understand one without the other.
1: So everybody has been interested in Akhenaten really from uh, some of the earliest Egyptological writings. Uh, Even without studying the subject very closely, it was very clear to people that the art under Akhenaten, the artistic style under Akhenaten, changed rather dramatically and we go from having a pantheon of gods and goddesses to having this this solar disk with multiple rays ending in human hands so it's very clear that something unusual is going on and in terms of how he's been described by people the descriptions are mutually exclusive he's described as this this monster this incestuous beast um, slothful, he's either an incompetent military leader, or he's willfully being a pacifist. Uh, all these descriptions just can't really fit a single person. Nefertiti is described very often as being the most beautiful woman in the world, even though no text ever says that she or anyone ever made such a sweeping claim for her. She's viewed as being an element in these uh, portraits of the family that are assumed to show Akhenaten as the great father of the family and that these are scenes of daily life, etc. So, uh, as, uh, Nefertiti. So Nefertiti, in, in spite of her prominence, is more or less relegated just to being kind of an accoutrement to Akhenaten. And what we realized as we began to work on the material is that actually they really are a unity. And in fact, We don't know any more about Nefertiti than we know about Akhenaten, and you can flip that around and say that everything we know about Akhenaten, theoretically, we know about Nefertiti because they're a unit. They're essentially bound together. There's one scene of them um, in a depiction of this great event of reception of foreign tribute in regnal year 12, where you first look at it, you can't tell that it's two different people. So even though the Egyptians do overlap figures, this is done to such an extreme to show almost that they're either merging or just barely emerging one from the other. So as we began working on them, we realized that they really are a unity and that this prominence of the royal women, because it's always Nefertiti and the daughters, this prominence of the royal women actually is an element in explaining what Akhenaten is doing, that that so many modern people have looked at that and said, oh, isn't that cute? They're playing with the daughters. That's seen a family life. And yes, no doubt they played with the daughters and they did have a family life, but it's a divergence from what we expect in Egyptian art, but it alludes to some things that we actually know. And one of the pitfalls, I think, for modern, even scholars looking at the field, is that so much has been written and there are so many preconceptions that everyone comes to Akhenaten and Nefertiti with this idea that we know they're revolutionary and we know everything they did is revolutionary. So we have to explain it really from itself. And it's actually not true, that much of what Akhenaten does is explicable based on what it would have been expected for the king as chief solar priest to do. And much of what Akhenaten and Nefertiti do mirrors what Akhenaten's parents, Amenhotep III and Tia, had actually done, just on a somewhat grander, and you might say more bizarre scale.
0: You've spoken a little bit about it already, uh, but I, you know, I was wondering how is it that Akhenaten and Nefertiti uh, modified the Egyptian religion? Uh, what what was the, the re- religion principally like before? Uh, and, and how did they uh, they innovate it?
2: So if we have to describe Egyptian religion, incredibly, incredibly complex theology using the most basic principles is that ancient Egyptian religion is a solar religion. So the fact that Akhenaten and Nefertiti choose Aten, choose this image of the sun, is really in keeping with thousands of years of ancient Egyptian history and is the reason, for example, that the pyramids have their shape, that is the shape of a solar monument. But within Egyptian religion and the solar component, the sun being the creator god, what the sun then does is produce a multiplicity of deities. So the focus on the sun as well as a very complex polytheistic religion where different cities might emphasize different creator gods or different chief deities that might also have a consort or a child, and they become the focus of ritual and cult in a particular city. And what Akhenaten and Nefertiti do that is so unusual is that they emphasize the solar religion to the exclusion of other gods because they don't want the competition, for example, of Amun being the one who creates the next king who impregnates the queen and thus issues the next generation of royalty. Although that iconoclastic movement only happened slightly later in Akhenaten and Nefertiti's reign. So it seems that it was the prerogative of the Egyptian king to make adjustments to Egyptian religion, just as Amenhotep III did when he acts like the sun god on earth during his Giant jubilee festival in year thirty, which he celebrates alongside Tia, and he seems to have an excellent reputation later in Egyptian history. But what Akhenaten and Nefertiti do takes all of that to yet one more level to too much of an extreme, and that's why the reputation suffers so
1: much. Yeah. So in Egyptian religion, we have various in Egyptian religion we have various creation accounts. But they all seem to share a basic feature, that there's a primordial creator in whom all potentiality of creation resides, inert in a formless mass out of which all creation arises as a separation of elements. So there's no creatio ex nihilo, the creator deity, who ultimately can be then equated with a solar deity begins to subdivide itself and begins to subdivide the elements out of Noon, creating the known cosmos then in which everything we know exists. Everything exists as a series of balanced pairs. Humans and and deities are, are one of these great paired groups within the ordered cosmos, and all the various gods and goddesses are created. During the New Kingdom in Egypt, we begin to see a couple of of different threads develop in the religion. We start to see a little bit more evidence of personal piety, prayers being offered by private people directly to deities, even without any sort of statuary or icon as an intermediary. And we begin to see a lot of speculation about the creator God as a sole primordial force, And we get texts before Akhenaten and especially after Akhenaten in the solar religion that will say that all gods are one god, which is true for the Egyptians because those gods come out of that primordial god. So what Akhenaten and Nefertiti seem to do is pick up the Heliopolitan, the kind of classic uh, creation account centered at the old solar cult at Heliopolis, which is more or less close to the modern-day Cairo International Airport. Uh, And they say, okay, there is a creator god, and it's Aten, it's the sun, and he has created the first male-female divine pair, the god Shu of luminous space, Tefnut, who is sometimes equated with uh, the moist, fecund environment out of which the world arises, and that's where we are right now. So, we're in this special time where we're really at the beginning of time. To some extent, he does this because he follows up on what his father did with the Jubilee. Colleen can explain a little bit about it, very quickly about that.
2: So, during the Jubilee, the Third sails in the sunbark with Tia. And normally a king
1: would only do that after death. A model of the sun bark.
2: Model of the sun bark, yes. <laughs> That's true. I mean, maybe he sailed in the, we don't know, but we know
1: he sailed in a model. But, um, full scale
2: model. <laughs> full scale. <laughs> <laughs> and then Amenhotep the Third keeps up this idea in his art and apparently in his rule that he is literally the sun god on earth. He's the sun god's image in a more literal fashion than previous kings. Amenhotep IV, who becomes Akhenaten, then takes it a bit further, identifying himself and Nefertiti with those two gods that John just mentioned, Shu and Tefnut. So in Egyptian religion, there is one god, at the beginning of time. And that's the solution to why Akhenaten and Nefertiti are only worshiping a single god. They're trying to take things back and pretend like it is this original moment of creation. And they are the first male god and female deity that have been created.
0: And so much of this, information that you gather it comes from the the hieroglyphs or hieroglyphics Uh, can you talk about some of the artwork and what uh what some of these images reveal uh, and also just the the processes and practices around how these were actually created
2: So a lot of our chapters, as you mentioned, revolve around the translation of hieroglyphic texts. And in addition to the hieroglyphs that would have been carved on temple walls, tomb walls, um, other stone monuments, the Egyptians also use a cursive script called hieratic, uh, which would have been appropriate for writing on papyrus. So we also have some translations of, of hieratic documents that play into the story. And what we really attempted to do was go back in every single case and re-examine literally every hieroglyphic inscription and hieratic text that might relate to the reigns of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. And one of those, that's the most famous and one of the most beautiful works of ancient literature is the Hymn to Aten. And that tells us a tremendous amount about Aten theology. It's the longest statement of Theology. But one of the most exciting and surprising discoveries we made during the course of writing the book, this was not something that we had in advance, was a rereading, uh, and we believe the correct translation now, of a key text early in Akhenaten's reign when he's still calling himself Amenhotep. And it is a fragmentary block, two fragmentary blocks that have the first recorded direct speech of Amenhotep IV. It's the first thing where he's talking that survives from his reign. And as we started to look at this fragmentary text, which had been previously identified as the moment that Akhenaten states his revelation, that all other gods and their statues have stopped working, that was the previous interpretation, and been Accepted uncritically for forty years in scholarship, and as we were looking at that text, we started to question. Well, what does the actual hieroglyphic text say? And I actually, the the table where we're recording this podcast right now, um, I I was looking at this at a book about Akhenaten statues that referenced the gods stopping, and I I was talking to John like, wow, that's really amazing that Akhenaten would say that, and John asked, well, what's the was the original hieroglyphic word. What's the verb there? Because that doesn't sound like the way the ancient Egyptians would describe it. And from that became one of the longer chapters in Egypt's golden couple.
1: And so one of the things we, we hope people realize when they read the book is that, uh, the translation process, isn't just one of saying, okay, this word unequivocally means this at all times. So therefore I plug that word in and I move on to the next one. Um, Certainly, we have a a pretty decent understanding of the grammar of ancient Egyptian. There's still some arguments that go on about the specific functions of some of the verb forms, but most people, not everyone, but most people agree on most of the, let's say, categories of the verbal system, that sort of thing. But there are words that don't occur that often. There are statements that don't have a great number of parallels. So it's always important to look and see what is the context, what is the genre of the text, what are the best parallels that you can find, where is that word used in another place, etc. And once we started looking at the text, we realized that it's one of these kind of time of troubles texts. There are these sort of topoi, there are these uh, sort of preconceived scenarios that the Egyptians like to use in Uh, especially royal text, doesn't mean they don't happen that way. But they will start, the king's in the palace, the messenger comes, there's some kind of a problem. The counselors and advisors all come, everyone gets together. Usually nobody has a clue as to what to do, and then the king thinks about it a little bit, steps in, and says, I got an idea. Every once in a while they depart. There's one where Teutmose III says, I'm going to attack now. And the advisors and generals say, no, we better wait till the rest of the army gets through that pass. And he says okay we'll wait till the rest of the army gets through that path so every once in a while they'll depart from the the, the genre we realize that this block fit that genre we also had a parallel text from the reign of Ramses ii where he describes a temple cult that isn't working anymore um he is the unfinished mortuary temple of his father seti the first and he actually uses the word stop but what he says has stopped is the ritual it's the the functioning of the temple and when he describes the statues he says that they're they're fallen over they're they're on the ground they're not where they should be so for an ancient egyptian a statue is like a piece of the temple machinery only works if you turn it on and you manipulate it the statues themselves don't just suddenly decide to stride around the temple on their own the egyptians know this so when we started looking at this we realized that once again the, the great desire to see a revelation in Akhenaten. Some of that brought on by the fact that it's taken for granted that it's this great revolution. And then Arthur Weigel, an Egyptian archaeologist, an archaeologist of of ancient Egypt, a British uh, who worked in Egypt in the early 20th century, wrote an incredibly influential biography of Akhenaten, which was one of the first modern attempts at a real kind of popular biography of an ancient figure, you might say. And in that, he says even himself that he knows he's going overboard, but in order to try to get across to people just how important he thinks Akhenaten is, he basically makes of him this kind of tragic proto messianic figure, this kind of Moses, Jesus all rolled into one who is, you know, well ahead of his time. So this is just out there for people. And I think it really influences what we think even as scholars very often. So when we started looking at this, we realized This is a text of the king calling to see an inventory, and inventories of temples are mentioned in a number of other texts and inscriptions. This is a time of troubles where there's a problem, something needs to be solved, and the king is expected to do the research to solve the problem. We have a great inscription of Ramses II from Luxor Temple where he does similar research to figure out how a temple is supposed to look. So... It's not revelatory, as in, you know, the the statues don't work. But what's even more interesting about it is that it shows an interest in what the statues look like in inventories of temples. Because we have other blocks from ancient Wasat, ancient Thebes, modern Luxor, from the very early years of the reign of Amenhotep IV, before he changes his name really to and then about the time he changes his name to we have blocks where he's actually taxing all the different temple cults of Egypt, and they're all paying this, you know, not inexpensive, but certainly not exorbitant tax to his new cult of Aten. So rather than being this This prophet king who's had some kind of vision, he becomes a king who's doing what you would expect a king to do, but who's taking a very specific interest in the economies of all the different temples of Egypt. So it almost makes him look a little bit more like Akhenaten, the religious businessman, rather than, let's say, Akhenaten, the the proto-Messiah, which I don't think makes him any less interesting.
0: Sort of following up on that point, uh, you know, can can you guys discuss not just necessarily the religious aspects of their reign, but you know, maybe the more day to day aspects, including, uh, you know, what, what what was the situation like militarily or diplomatically? Because uh, I imagine they were facing, uh, you know, they, they were fa- I imagine it, it was, you know, keeping police power was was difficult in this time uh, without, you know, cell phones and, and and other things to to keep everything organized.
2: So it was really interesting to be writing about Akhenaten and Nefertiti and be able to include the aspect of diplomacy and foreign policy because we have military texts throughout the 18th dynasty and even before. Although the 18th and 19th and 20th dynasties are the New Kingdom is when we have the longest and most detailed military texts. From the reign of Akhenaten, we only have a single battle text, uh, a single campaign that takes place in year 12 against a population of Nubians in the desert that seem to be threatening the gold mining regions. And this actually leads to a bit of an overreaction in terms of Egyptian military campaigning because they're so concerned about the constant flow of gold. But For Amenhotep III and Akhenaten, we have a cache of cuneiform letters. These are the so-called Amarna letters that were found in the records office, uh, the Royal Records Office at Akhenaten, so modern Amarna. And they are the correspondence between the Egyptian royal court, the Egyptian sphere of influence, to the Northeast, as well as the other major powers, uh, Babylonia, Assyria, Mitanni, and uh, a few others as well. And what's so cool about that is that we actually get the back and forth between the leaders. And we have a tiny bit of that from the reign of Ramses II, but otherwise the richest tapestry of characters and uh duplicity and diplomacy, uh, as we say in the chapter, really comes from the reign of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. So we can say a lot about his approach to foreign policy and that essentially he was willing to give up some Egyptian cities and territories in order to allow for the rise of a buffer state, the buffer state of Amuru. And he was not concerned about maintaining the full extent of the Egyptian empire as long as there was a buffer between what he likely knew was going to become Egypt's greatest new enemy, which were the Hittites centered in modern day
1: Turkey. So one of the interesting things about Akhenaten is he's accused of being inept diplomatically, but that really rests on an interpretation of this diplomatic correspondence, which has survived apparently because it got left at Aten, when Aten was abandoned. The ancient Egyptians are probably transcribing the contents of these texts. They're being written on clay tablets, which is, you know, I've never considered to be necessarily the smartest way to send a letter but um cuneiform takes over as this kind of diplomatic script because most of the people writing these um are are speaking in their everyday life some um semitic dialect and since north semitic akkadian um has been already using cuneiform, you can adapt it to the dialects of the northwest semitic that many of the vassal states of the egyptians are using so uh we have all these letters, and obviously the vassal states are all getting terrified. The Ribati of Biblos is the most loquacious of the correspondents, probably. He's always saying, they're coming to get me, they're coming to get me, you got to save me, help, help, help. And modern people tend to look at this and go, that's right, why doesn't Ahnan help Rabadi? That poor guy is in trouble. Well, we don't know how many other rulers of Egypt got other letters at time from someone and said, I am not answering this at all, I don't care, I'm tired of this. I can't believe this guy. He doesn't realize what's going on and I can't tell him. Or I, you know, I let out these great diplomatic strategies that we've contrived. So one of the things we've tried to do with Akhenaten and Nefertiti is say, you know, rather than just assuming in some simplistic way that every time somebody cries for help, Akhenaten charges off with some massive army to help them. What if this were someone thinking about this in a more global way, as we know people are thinking of things precisely because of this international correspondence. So you can look at Ahnan as being somewhat of an idiot, if you want, but you can also look at the very same evidence and say he's playing a really incredible game of realpolitik in in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect before, let's say, the 19th or 20th century. Now, it doesn't mean that that's true, But what it means is then that we can't say that Akhenaten, the inept diplomat or the pacifist, we can't say those are are true either. It's interesting that it's an international system in which certain of the big powers can write directly to each other and address each other as brother or the queens as sister. But all the others have to write through someone else, Assyria technically is supposed to write through Babylonia. So when the Assyrians start writing directly, the Babylonians sort of freak out because the Egyptians, if the Egyptians answer the Assyrians and say, hello, brother, thank you for your letter, then, bing, you have immediately recognized that they are now a member of the big club, the sort of great powers club, as it's been called. So it's really a rather interesting thing. Egypt sits at the pinnacle of that club. So the king of Egypt is literally referred to as the son of of the rulers, which is how the Egyptians, S-U-N, the solar god of the rulers, and that's even how the Egyptians themselves see the king vis-a-vis foreigners. There are a number of divine statues of the king that can be called Ray of the Rulers. So Egypt's the primary place. It's the primus inter pares of the whole group, and everybody wants them to send them things. And they have no compunction of saying, you only sent me gold-plated statues, I want gold statues, because everybody knows gold is like dust in the streets in Egypt. You just go out and sweep it up and send it off. So the Egyptians are always having complaints made. I think it's the king of Babylon wants an Egyptian wife. Yes. Um, and the king says, nope, Egyptian women don't don't marry foreigners. And he says, um, well, he wants a princess, apparently, originally. And he says, that's not happening. Um, and then he says, send me just any Egyptian woman. I'll say she's a princess. Nobody here will know. And then he gets another letter. I, I think saying, you know, what, what do you not understand? This just doesn't, it's not going to happen. So, so Egypt is a place from which everyone wants both to get stuff and they also want to derive sense of their own political importance by writing
0: to the Egyptians. Something that I found really interesting uh in the book and and you talk a little bit about just you know the in these letters you know the people addressing each other as brother is just you know the the sheer level of of inbreeding in these families so I, I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about uh you know the the marriage practices. Uh, and, and also you know maybe the, the the health problems that came out and and how these health problems were maybe uh, conceived of or addressed at the time because uh, like, I, I know in particular Teton and common was very uh I, I don't know if, if necessarily these illnesses were could be directly traced to uh inbreeding but i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that subject
2: sure so to work backwards the physical evidence for Tutankhamun's pathologies have actually recently been debatable. Uh, they've, they've really been re examined, and there's some question of whether medical diagnoses attributed to Tutankhamun actually are there. And part of the problem is that because Tutankhamun's tomb remained intact, the mummy stayed within these tremendously thick resins that were poured. Over the mummy, whereas a lot of the other New Kingdom mummies were removed from their tombs after a hundred years or so, precisely because the Egyptian government at the time, uh, around 1050 BCE, needed the gold <laughs> that was in their tomb. So it keeps coming back to gold. Like this is this is very significant, uh, and. Because Tutankhamun's mummy is not in really good condition, it's been a challenge to make those sort of determinations. The genetic evidence suggests um, one of two scenarios, either that Tutankhamun's parents were brother and sister, or that Tutankhamun's parents were first cousins on both sides. And that latter scenario, uh, which we present in the book, seems to work very well with this idea of Nefertiti being related to Tia's family. So there are a few times, definitely definitely in the 18th dynasty, where there are full brother-sister marriages or um, half-brother, half-sister marriages, but they're not continuous over generations the way we see actually with the Ptolemaic dynasty, with Cleopatra's uh, family, the famous Cleopatra VII. And in Egyptian love poetry, as well as actually what's happening with these diplomatic letters, the term brother and sister is a term of endearment that does not indicate actual genetic relationships. And when in the Egyptian love poetry, they're addressing each other as, oh, my brother, oh, my sister, and then spouting these really incredibly passionate statements we're not to interpret that literally, uh, and it actually does relate to the po- the. It actually does relate to the legal status of women in ancient Egypt. That husband and wife distributed their property the same way as brothers and sisters, and the estate, as it was passed on, could be distributed equally among siblings, whether uh, they were men or women. So that's really actually kind of an interesting aspect of both the symbolic significance of those terms and an economic reality that signaled women's legal equality, at least ideally as the ancient
1: Egyptians expressed it. So in the royal family, you could have brother-sister marriages. They do happen periodically. We never, though, get a really long stretch of very close consanguineous marriages, Until you get to the Greco-Roman period and you get to the Ptolemies, who apparently mimicking um, Isis and Osiris, who of course have to marry his brother sister because there's no other, you know, they're they're in one of the first generations of of deities. Um, Even there, even with the Ptolemies, they don't seem to have had a lot of physical issues. They do seem to have been really quite bloodthirsty, brutal, and somewhat crazed in their... Behavior, So there might have been some some uh, mental or psychological aspects to it for them. But it's interesting that evidence for just run of the mill, uh, close family, brother, sister marriages are more in evidence for the Greco-Roman period than they are actually for
0: pharaonic Egypt. That's uh, that's very interesting. Um, Sort of not what I would necessarily have expected either going into into reading about it. Uh, you know, in the, in the interest of time, I, I think, you know, for, for listeners who are interested in hearing about the, you know, the eventual demise and death of, uh, of Akhenaten Nefertiti, I'll leave it there. Uh, but I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, Tutankhamen, uh, as it is the, the centennial of the discovery of his tomb, and what Tutankhamen's uh, relationship was like to the legacy of his parents.
2: So we don't see evidence of Tutankhamen, who was born Tutankhaten, much during the reign of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. And sometimes people have then extrapolated and said, "Well, Tutankhaten had a very lonely childhood, and he wasn't included in his parents' activities with his sisters." And that really is just a function of art and theology that Tudank Aten representing the next generation of male ruler doesn't fit into the sorts of scenes that are included in Amarna art. So he is certainly there born at Ahed Aten. And there is a three year period where a female king takes over after the end after the end of the reign of Ahnan after his death. And there's still debate on whether she is Nefertiti or the eldest daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, married Aten. And I guess we won't give away where we go in the book. Uh, But after that king, Neferneferu Aten, dies, Tutank Aten ascends to the throne, but has changed his name to Tutank Amen, because he, with his advisors, he's only 9 years old at the time, 9 or 10, uh, restores the previous polytheistic religion. Now, I should point out,
1: we often see this as Akhenaten has this revolutionary religion, Tut comes along and says, nope, canceling that out, and we're going back to what it was before. It's a little more complex than that, this this ephemeral ruler, Anchet Kheperu Re, Nefer is attested in a graffito by a priest in a tomb in ancient Waset, modern Luxor, West Bank, Uh, is attested to having something in the domain of Amun at Waset. So there is already some move back to certain more traditional aspects of Egyptian religion, and there's an abandoning of this "we're all living at the beginning of time" scenario that Akhenaten and Nefertiti have. So it's not quite the totally abrupt change that we see that, that that has sometimes been seen to happen for time.
0: So, you know, with the 100th uh, centennial, uh, I was wondering if the two of you could just speak a little bit uh, generally about the, you know, the field of Egyptology, uh, where you see it heading, uh, and maybe uh, anything else that that the two of you are working on either together or independently.
2: So it certainly is exciting that the centenary of Tutankhamun's tomb uh, is is being celebrated in Egypt. And it's it's really wonderful to see the soon-to-be-opened Grand Egyptian Museum, which will have the complete reinstallation of the objects from Tutankhamun's tomb. So it's, it's really wonderful to see that happening in Cairo. Uh, and in terms of future research, we uh, John directs an expedition at El Khab in Upper Egypt, which is covered a little bit in the epilogue. We will be continuing to work on that
1: and publications and I mean, I would say, just broadly speaking, from my own experience and what I see, Egyptology obviously very early on has, has focused on great funerary monuments and temples of the Nile Valley. They're massive. They're always threatened by various types of human activity. You know, humans are always building monuments and then doing various things over time that threaten them. So it's, it's understandable that there's been so much work put on the funerary aspects of ancient Egypt and the temples. But there is another Egypt um, in the deserts to the east, the west, to the south. Much work began already in ancient Nubia, south of Egypt, during the salvage campaigns, Uh, before the construction of the various versions of the Aswan Dam that was going to flood the Nile Valley regions, but even there in ancient Nubia there are the desert hinterlands. And as we often find ourselves uh, working on ancient desert roads, caravan tracks through the eastern and the western deserts, uh, many of the pieces of the puzzle that have not been found in the Nile Valley and that have not been found in the places where people have been looking for them for decades, Many of those pieces are lying out there in the desert. They're in places where we might not expect them. And there is now more work going on in some of these more marginal regions. There's a more look at, let's say, there's more focus on the lives and the networks of the living state and of the lives of the ancient Egyptians, rather than focusing quite so much on Egypt as this hieratic and priest-heavy society that was obsessed with death, which actually they were not. They, As Weigel pointed out correctly, they were actually so obsessed with how great life was in ancient Egypt that they were desperate to make sure that it continued throughout eternity. But I think that's one of the great things is that there's now more of a look at, let's say, networks and interactions of people and areas, uh, rather than just sort of focusing on Egypt as this place that was just always there and was rather static, which it was not. And I hope in the book that we pointed out um, that even from some of the more disparate and dispersed pieces that you can find, that you really can build up a little bit of a picture of why someone was doing what they were doing and how it fit into their world, rather, let's say, in how we might interpret it based on our own preconceptions.
0: I, I think that, you know, the book does uh, a wonderful job at that, actually. Uh, and, you know, the two of you through sort of different methods, uh, both uh, looking at the, the the hieroglyphs and then also, uh, you know, just the, the, the descriptions at at the beginning, the more literary descriptions do help to to uh, paint this picture. Uh, and also, yeah, you know, I always appreciate that, you know, you you point out when there are gaps in the uh, in the knowledge uh, and you know, then letting, uh, letting readers fill those gaps in or not fill them in, depending on uh, how creative they want to be. Uh, so, uh, John and Colleen, thank you so much for, for being guests on uh, the New Books Network. This book was uh, extremely fascinating. It's Egypt's Golden Couple, When Akhenaten and Nefertiti Were Gods on Earth from St. Martin's Press. Uh, I hi- highly recommend uh, that listeners uh, check it out. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you.